Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami Continuing with the chapter, A Buddha in Every Realm, and this is the last section, uh, entitled, There is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed. Is there somebody else in the back there? We use these reflections to let go of the content of experience, to be open to the process of experiencing. Buddha introduced the contemplations on Anicca Dukkha Anatta at the very beginning of his teaching career, when he spoke to his five companions just after his enlightenment. He used these three characteristics as a way of exploring experience. They are tools for investigation rather than a philosophical position. So, the Buddha is not saying that you should believe everything is not self. He's inviting us to take this principle and use it to explore our habits of thinking, our attitudes. So, as I was saying before, and uh, as we uh, chanted, not today, we did the fire sermon today, but um, I think uh, a day or so ago, uh, we chanted the Anatalakana Sutta, and um, we have the translation on the opposite pages to that in the chanting book, so that's a very easy uh, access um, to the meaning there. And um, as you can tell by going through the, the uh, uh, each of the, the five khandhas, the Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, then the, the methodology that the, the Buddha uses with each one, is so he sort of leads all of his companions through, so bit by bit. It's just a way of analysis, what they call the Vibhajyavada, or the the way of um, of uh, deconstructing or, or uh, analyzing, and uh, so he starts off by saying, you know, "Rupa, rupang nichangwa anichangwa." Uh, so, material form is it changed or does it not change? Yeah. Is it? Uh, so he starts off with the most visible, most tangible uh, aspect: so material, the world of material form. Is it changing or is it not changing? Okay, yes. nichangwa, uh, it's changing. And then he says, uh, that which is uh, changing, is it subject to affliction or not subject to affliction? Says, yes, it's subject to affliction. Then he says, so, that which is in a state of change and which is subject to affliction, which is not t- satisfa- totally satisfactory, is it appropriate to say of that, this is me, this is what I am, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself? No he tang bante. Yes. Sorry, teacher. So one thing I don't understand about that particular chanting sermon is, like, usually there's a very logical order, um, but it says everything's changing, and this that which is changing is not suffering. But why is that inherently suffering? It's as if 
I'm expected to believe that assumption, but that isn't actually my assumption when I look at it. I don't assume that everything that's changing is painful. Um, yeah, well, good point. Um, the, 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 the logic behind it is that um, if something is in a state of change, if it's pleasant now, then that pleasantness will come to an end. Uh, and, uh, or if it's painful now, it's already painful. And so that, uh, that the uh, unsatisfactory, it's, uh, is, uh, is it subject to affliction? Um, yeah, is it? Uh, it doesn't mean to say it's necessarily uh, sort of dukkha right away. But if a thing is in a state of change, then uh, it can't possibly be permanently pleasing. So that's why it's um, subject to affliction. But my understanding of the pain comes from clinging, wanting it to stay the same. But if you know it's changing in you. Well, you, that, that's the thing is that we don't. <laughs> See, there, there isn't that appreciation that the habits of, uh, of attitude are, oh, this is great. Keep this. Or like, like this coming out of the temple. There's this beautiful, luminous, pink, sort of mauve pink sky. Ooh. So how many of us thought, camera? <laughs> Quick. Get it. Or at least linger and soak it up. So I, I mean, I did soak it up for a few seconds. <laughs> You know, it's really enjoyable, but it is interesting, even when the sky is luminous like that, at the dawn or on the evening, even when there is that kind of ultraviolet sort of brightness to it, as you sort of fix your gaze on it, that initial, wow, it can't stay. Your mind can't stay in a state of wow. That the, the, um, uh, the dopamine receptors adapt. <laughs> if I remember correctly, that's particularly a bit of the brain. The, um, that uh, that sort of wow, the wowness can only stay for a certain amount of time. So that's why it's subject to affliction. And if we if and if you stood there for longer, you know, trying to hang on to it, then then it would uh, it would as uh, as William Blake put it, it would the winged life destroy. That he that kisseth a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He that binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. William Blake, so it's, excuse the gender specific pronouns, but uh, it's William Blake, it was 200 years ago. So, um, that's, that's what, that's the logic of it. And so then, and then, um, the, uh, uh, so it, just because something, you know, we wouldn't make that association immediately, but that's the, the, um, the principle behind it. So to carry on. After his enlightenment, the Buddha was traveling to the deer park in Varanasi to reconnect with his five former companions. He met a wanderer named Upaka along the road. Upaka mentioned him yesterday, the day before. Upaka thought to himself, wow, or the Magadis equivalent, (laughs) whatever wow is in Pali. (laughs) Wow, this monk looks really radiant and peaceful. Upaka said to the Buddha, you look like you just had some kind of great awakening or some powerful experience. The Buddha said, yes, I'm fully enlightened, and I'm the only enlightened being in the whole world. Upaka was a bit shocked. I think we've all met people who speak like this on the street. I met one in Rome not long ago. It was an interesting encounter. I was on my way to the Vatican. So I could say, excuse me, I haven't got time to talk, I'm on my way to the Vatican. <laughs> 
He's a very, a very luminous um, Christian guy. Upaka said, it sounds like you have, you know, that you claim to have realized the deathless. If that's the case, who's your teacher? How did you awaken to this? The Buddha said, and this is all paraphrasing, this isn't precise quotations. Uh, yes, that's, that's correct. I have realized the deathless, but I have no teacher. I realized this completely by myself. Upaka said, well, good for you, friend, rather as I did with the fellow in Rome. And then shaking his head, Upaka left by a different road. In this account, Upaka spoke to the Buddha about the deathless, quote-unquote. This term might be unfamiliar to some, although it's common within the Buddha's teachings. It's one of the qualities of Dhamma in its transcendent aspect. One of the most significant teachings, and one of Ajahn Sumedho's favorite passages from the scriptures, is where the Buddha says, There is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed. And if there was not, the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, then escape from the born, the originated, the created, and the formed would not be possible. But, because there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, therefore escape from the born, the originated, the created, and the formed is possible. So we chant that uh, fairly fairly regularly here. It's from the Udana, uh, the chapter 8 of the Udana. So this teaching points to the transcendent dimension of reality, beyond time and space and identity. The main aspect of awakening is the embodiment of the realization of that transcendent quality. That's why it's called liberation from birth and death. So any other questions on that before continuing? Yes. No, I mean, it's not exactly on this, but it was uh, earlier I was reflecting on desire and aversion. And I come to the idea that maybe at the moment I'm feeling more desire than aversion. And then the thought sort of puts in mind saying, oh, hang on a minute, are you sure about that? And I wondered whether actually any experience, because even if you don't follow it, but having an experience of desire, you can have an equal and opposite amount of aversion. Some Absolutely, yes. It's, there's no limit. <laughs> but you can't just feel desire and no, no aversion. Is that? Um, you mean aversion in terms of disappointment or, or experiencing the, the, the liability? Yeah. yeah. Is it possible to, you're not following out, is it possible to sort of, let's say, either see a bit, see a bit of cake and have some desire, maybe not act it out, mm-hmm. but you, just because you've actually experienced some desire, is it you can have kind of an equal opposite amount of... No, not necessarily. No, people have different different character types. Um, there's a whole book of the Abhidharma called the Pugala Panyati, different kinds of uh, human character character types. And also in the Visuddhimagga, you've got lots of descriptions of... So there are basically greed types, aversion types, and delusion types. And we uh, tend to favor one particular um, uh, track, but it's not confined uh, to just... I'm a strictly delusion type, and I never do you know, read an aversion. <laughs> it's usually a mixture of all of them, but uh, uh, it, in terms of character types, then there's often one that the, the mind inclines towards. So uh, I tend to be more of a greed type and, rather than an aversion type. And so um, uh, other, uh, other people are... Um, uh, I'm more of a aversion type, and uh, I was I told a, a story I think a few weeks ago about one of the. He's actually now a terror. He's an older monk, but <laughs> when he was in Anagarika, he was uh, he had a very strong habit of complaining about everything. I was like his basic relation to, to relationship to life was to find some complaint. 
He wasn't particularly sort of angry or upset. It was just that was how he related was that what was wrong with things. And um, he used to do, he was a very good driver and he used to do a, do a lot of driving because and California is a big place. It's much you, know, you do a lot more time on the road than you do here in in Britain. So the monastery was about two and a half three hours drive from the city of San Francisco or, or Berkeley. So I spent a lot of time on that, the highway. <laughs> so uh, one time we were making a, a trip down from the monastery to uh, to um, the Bay Area, and we were about an hour and a half out of out of the monastery, and in a fairly steady stream of uh, of grumbling of one kind or another. Uh, and I realize I'm, I realize I'm being recorded, and he'll probably get to hear this. But, <laughs> you know, that's about me. <laughs> He's also pretty sharp, so he would figure it out. And so about. Somewhere around Santa Rosa, about, about an hour and a half out of uh, Bayagiri, I said, you know, no one has ever developed the path of complaining their way to Nibbana. <laughs> it's, a completely, it's a completely new spiritual, you're breaking spiritual ground here. This is a completely unique spiritual path, is the, the way of complaining. So, yeah, also, California has a lot of um, self-help books. So you see these, you know, the way of this, that, and the other. It's very, very common. There's a lot of great variety. So, you know, I've never seen the way of complaining. It's a sort of spiritual path. <laughs> he did get the point. But, uh, so, so the, you get to part, one of the aspects of, of uh, developing mindfulness and being a, a well-rounded person, a sapurisa, is getting to know your own character, atanyita. It's getting to know your own personality. Do you hear yourself complaining about everything, or do you do you hear yourself you know, praising everything, or, or, or wanting everything, yeah, or or just being confused about everything? <laughs> what what's the 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 dominant trait of the mind? Are you, are you prone towards doubt? Like I've never been much of a doubter. So aversion and doubt I don't do much of, but greed I'm really good at. So that's kind of my that's why I have a cootie full of books. It's like oh, there's more things to read. <laughs> So it manifests around words a lot. So um, get to know what your own character is. Now, you can't just sort of snap your fingers and be different. But if you see that there's aspects of your character, like complaining and criticizing and contending against other people, that is harmful to yourself and others, then you know, along with recognizing that trait, then it's helpful to to train yourself just not to follow it in you know, a compulsive or just a, an unconscious way. So, but it, yeah, it's not. It's, there's not a strict proportion. Like you know, you spent so much time following a greedy impulse, and therefore there'll be aversion. It doesn't. I don't. Doesn't seem to work quite that way. Okay. So to continue, one of the most significant things that we recite when recollecting the attributes of the triple gem are the qualities of the Dhamma, apparent here and now timeless, encouraging investigation. To speak of the timeless, the unborn, the deathless, might sound a bit spacey and remote, a bit airy-fairy. However, it's not referring to some super-cosmic realm somewhere else. Rather, it is the fabric of our own heart. This is the Dhamma. The aim of Buddhist practice is to discover this liberated quality of our own being that we've had with us all the time. It's the very foundation of what we are, but we've not noticed it having been preoccupied with worldly concerns. To borrow a phrase from Christian tradition, it's closer to us than we are to ourselves. So, to continue the story. The Buddha was a very quick learner. 
He realized that a straightforward declaration like that was not helpful, seeing that Upaka shook his head and went off by a different path. Okay, well, that didn't work. <laughs> so when he met with his five friends, he adopted a method of analysis, that's the Vibhajivada. Rather than telling them this is the ultimate reality, he used a way of reflecting on Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta to help his friends arrive at that realization for themselves. They started off with Anicca and the body. He asked, is the body changing? Is the body in a state of change? They answered, yes. Then he asked, asked if something is changing, is it subject to affliction or not subject to affliction? Then they answered, it is subject to affliction. The body can be sick, it can break apart. Then the, the, the Buddha asked, if something is changing, if it's subject to affliction, then is it something that can be permanently satisfactory? They answered, it can't be permanently satisfactory if it's subject to affliction and is in a state of change. It is necessarily dukkha, unsatisfactory. Then the Buddha asked, so, if the body is in a state of change, subject to affliction and is unsatisfactory, is it appropriate to say of it, this is mine, this is what I am, this is my true self? Etang mama eso hamasmi eso me ata. And uh, so mama, the uh, the Pali word mama, it means mine. And uh, I don't think it's an accident that it's uh, the primordial sound of a baby to the in to the makes the, to the mother. And that's why uh, the the word mother um, is very similar in very many many languages. So the ma, 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 the baby sort of um, expressing the presence of uh, uh, happiness of the presence of the mother and um, uh, and uh, that also I feel that primordial sense of owning that the baby feels the mother is is mine <laughs> and that it might not be related at all but uh, that's the Pali word for for mine is mama and um, so it might be a completely false etymology, but I do feel it's, there's a, a connection there, that sense of, of owning. And the, so when the mother is absent, then the child can be very upset. And when the mother is present, then the child can be very happy that they've got what is what is theirs. I mean, they're not thinking in, the, in words, but they are. Um, uh, that's the, the feeling of the, the comforting and reassuring, nourishing presence of the mother. So... Etang mama eso hamasmi asmi is I am the the, the verb to to be I am, uh, and ata is like the Sanskrit word atman. The ata is a self, and sometimes that the third one is referred to in terms of theories about a self, uh, like that you have a belief that the self is eternal or the self is universal or. Uh, the self exists in a particular state or so after after death, but I feel it's more helpful to um, to see that these are uh, they're much more close to home. It's not so much having a, a that third one is so that the first one is the owning self that that which is related to tanha uh, to craving to to, to owning and uh, to having, and then the second one asmi. Uh, is related to being, so being self, and the third one I, I like to call the narrative self. So that um, this is I am Ajahn Amra, that's my name, or I am sixty-five years old, or I'm uh, British, or I, I have a dual nationality, I am the, uh, and uh, I live at Amravati. You know, our, our story, our name, our background, our, our uh, sort of place where we were born, and so on. That. Those are also aspects of, of the selfing that is very, very solid and real and 
and inarguable, inarguable for most of us. So those are called the Papancha Dhammas, Tanha, Mana, and Diti, that view, represented by uh, those, those three statements in the Anathalakana Sutta. The Etang Mama Eso Hamasmi Eso Me Ata. So Tanha, Mana, and Diti, craving, conceit, and views. And uh, they're called the Papancha Dhammas because they're the, the fuel, they're the, the, the kind of energy source, the, the fuel source for that conceptual proliferation, the I-making and mind-making. Yeah, my story, my things, what I am, uh, what belongs to me, uh, all, all of that um, is, a, is, a, a f- is fuel for complication and proliferation. Uh, so they're known as the Papancha Dhammas, those, those three, Tanha, Mana, and Diti. Uh, so anyway, the, the five companions replied, no, it's not appropriate to say that. In the Buddha's time, as with Vedic philosophy today, there was the idea of the, the Atman, the self, and the Atman was thought of, of as being permanent and blissful and truly who and what we are. Its qualities comprising sat-chit-ananda, being consciousness bliss. So in a sense, the Buddha was aiming right at those beliefs of, uh, of his time. If the characteristics of Atman are meant to include permanence and bliss, the body cannot be Atman, it cannot be Atta, Pali. So that's part of the background of why the Buddha was talking in that particular way. was because that's a, if there is a self, then uh, if there is a, truly a, an, an Atman, an Atta, then it would, have those, it, would be, it would be blissful and would be stable. Being consciousness bliss. In this teaching, the group of his, uh, in his teaching to the group of his companions, the Buddha goes through each of the five khandhas. The first is rupa, material form, just as described. The second is feeling, vedana. The third is sanya, perception. The fourth is sankara, mental formations. The fifth, the fifth is vijnana, consciousness based on the senses. It's very systematic. First, there is the exploration of the physical realm, rupa. The other four aspects are, are of mind, nama. The Buddha says that each of those khandhas is in a state of change, is subject to affliction, and is not permanently satisfying. He says that these khandhas are impersonal. They cannot be said to be a true self, who we really are, or our fundamental nature. Ne tang mama ne so hamasmi na me so me ata te. This is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. When we, f- when we focus upon the characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, keeping those in mind as an ongoing reflection, and we look at the result of that reflection, how does it change our heart? In that moment of non-grasping, what is the quality of experience? This has to be known, to be realized by each individual for themselves, but the Buddha pointed out that it is when the grasping stops that the deathless is realized. This is the deathless, namely, the liberation of mind through not clinging. So there's quite a lot in there, Any, but, and so, and again, these readings are for all of you, not just for me to be spouting more words, but uh, if there's anything there that's not clear or would like a bit more um, uh, see, sorting through, then please do speak up. Sorry, I should ask another question. Please, yes. That's allowed. Yeah. Um, something that, you know, because you mentioned um, uh, Tanha, Tanha, Mana, and Ditti. Seetums. Views. It occurs to me that uh, the first three fetters are kind of to do with views. The second two fetters are to do with sort of craving and 
the last five to do with well, it, they include this detail. Right? They do, yeah. So is there sort of also kind of link with sort of verbal formations, bodily formations, and mental formations, or is that a step too far? It could be. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, uh, certainly, the first one that matches up somewhat. <laughs> Not totally, but uh, uh, somewhat. Uh, and Ooh, let's think. Uh, I'm not quite sure what, um, because the, the the second lot on the uh, sense, desire, and ill will they're not particularly related to the verbal formation. I mean, bodily formation. Oh, sorry. Verbal for the first three. You know, it's kind of. I think I've heard Ron Paul Smeda saying that it's to do with thinking. Um, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Okay. I mean, it's okay. The stretching is all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've, done, I've done some very, very imaginative uh, bits of sort of guesswork and joining up the dots in strange ways myself. But, uh, but like, you don't really see that. Do it doesn't doesn't ring very very true. But uh, certainly, um, um, the you know the the first three of the of the fetters, self view, uh, doubt. And, uh, and attachment to conventions, you know, they are, uh, they are in a way associated with that sort of coarse kinds of, of clinging. Um, but, um, yeah, with, with all of these, these lists of, of different qualities and that, it's, uh, it's helpful. I find it's helpful to sort of take the particular terms and just sort of sit on them and, and you bring them into the meditation and, and to explore, okay, how, you know, how do I feel that, or what is that? Okay, I know the word, I've got the idea of what it means, but what, what is that, how does that map onto my own experience? Like, so, like with doubt, uh, Vichikicha, doubt is the, the second of the, um, of the fetters, of, the, of those, the ten fetters. So, it's, it's helpful to think to consider, okay, well, what kind of doubt is that? Is it doubt about. You know, whether to have an apple or an orange, <laughs> probably not. So, what does that doubt refer to? And then, if you explore it and, and 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 look into it, then you find, oh, it's it's quite specific. It's a doubt about what's the path and what's not the path. Aha, okay, that makes sense. So, it's not just any kind of questioning; it's that particular kind of a, a doubt. So, when the, when people say or oh, uh, use the word talking about stream entry, is it's going beyond doubt? And ah, oh, it's not doubt about which fruit to choose, <laughs> but it's about, it's not just being decisive, but it's uh, that sense of knowing what the path is and not being able to forget that. That's, that's, that's clear what, what needs to be done. That's, and so that's kind of picking up particular terms and, and getting to know them. So that's, you're really practicing with the, the teaching and, and putting it to work. And then, as, as I've said once or twice before, if, uh, if we come across things that is just confusing, like, what does that mean? How does that work? I don't, I don't get that. Uh, then just to, to sort of park that on a, a shelf to say, well, okay, that's, I'm interested in that, but I really can't get a sense of what that, what that means or what that's talking about. That's, that's, uh, uh, mysterious to me. So just to leave it there and just to, uh, bring attention to it from time to time. But, uh, don't try and feel that you've got to, you've got to work it out or you've got to just think your way through it and figure out a, an answer because, yeah, if all you're using is the conceptual mind and sort of memory and language and imagination, it, it often isn't isn't going to do the job very well. And so sometimes uh, just having something that's that sort of sits there that is mysterious 
like I've talked about with dependent origination, is some of those, particularly the the earlier parts of the the process. So, what does that mean? Uh, ignorance conditions formations, or formations conditions consciousness. What the? How does? Huh? <laughs> it's like a big blank. Like what? Well, you know, how does that work? Or what's that about? Yeah, I can understand what the words are, and I can remember what the words are, but so what? It's just as if it was in a completely foreign language that I don't know what it means. So, in, in that kind of a way, I just sort of let those sit there for quite some time. And it wasn't really until uh, being with Lumpur Sumato here uh, in the late 80s when he was teaching about uh, dependent origination every every winter retreat and sort of going through it bit by bit by bit by bit. And that, uh, but, ah, <laughs> okay, there's that, that aspect to it. Okay, well, maybe that's what that means. And then sitting with it, doing that theories of, of formal practice and just sort of pondering, looking at the particular words or connections of qualities and mapping that onto your own experience. And then slowly things take shape. But it can be, you know, it can be years from when you first come across something to when you've got a sense of, ah, I think I know what that means. <laughs> So, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's not worthwhile making those kind of joining up the dots and seeing whether they fit. And also being prepared to say, well, it was a neat pattern, but it's, I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's how the, the dots are supposed to be joined up in that, that particular puzzle. It's supposed to be a horse, and I've just produced a, <laughs> an elephant, you know. Horse, horses don't have tusks. So I must have got something wrong in that picture. Yes. About dependent origination, I think I produce a good hand big horse, not only one horse. Say that again. Um, about the dependent originations, mm-hmm. I think my horse horse has two heads <laughs> because there is a, a two two different uh, teaching. More, more teachings and more uh, different translation of the word of the Anicca, Sanka of Sankara and Baba, and and so I uh, I start to think about all these things, and uh, it seems like um, Sankara. Is still uh, the mind. If it is, uh, it's translated as one information, and another translation is intention. And then uh, consciousness. Um, oh, sorry, um, namarupa is also the mind there. And and then salayatana. Uh, it's also uh, mind is there because the six senses is also the mind. Mm-hmm. So they all all condition the mind condition the mind the mind the mind, and then avija it it cannot not be present. It's always present, and um, so it just uh, seems to be. Um, just a visual conditions something, <laughs> and, and uh, 
and if there is wisdom, there is not not, not something anymore. <laughs> no condition. That's pretty much it. Yes. So <laughs> you just stay in the heart and see what's happening, and nothing else is important. Just be present in the moment. moment. So it is it's just. Uh, if I if you go that is I think it's just mental, 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 mental. So <laughs> yeah, if you if you try to to figure figure it all out logically, just from the as you say that the, there's so much overlapping and what, you know, how is this mind different from from that mind or that the the in the nama kundas of the of nama rupa you've got uh, you you've got feeling uh, you've got uh, perception you've got you got sankara in the in the nama, and so there's a lot of overlapping. So that's why that the the way I mapped it out in this little diagram, uh, I felt it was just bringing those those first four together and just essentially lumping it in the form of well, this is how when there's ignorance, the subject object dynamic gets formed. There's a an experiencer and an experienced, and that's. Uh, in a way, also like Ajahn Shah saying, you know, you're falling out of a tree, trying to count the the branches and twigs on the way down. It's it's too it's too refined. It's too complicated. It happens too fast. But to just summarize the whole that whole first part of the process is that if there's unmindfulness, if the attention drifts, then there's a me here and a and a world out there. Or there's a me looking at my mind. The, the sense of the subject, the the the, the doer, the experiencer. And the thing that is experienced that becomes quite clearly divided, and that's as much as we really need to know. So I felt that in the many times I've I've sort of taught this, I found it's far easier just to and more more realistic and more practical to 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 work with it in those terms rather than trying to pick out every detail. So does the the Vedana in the Nama of Nama Rupa is that how is that different from the Vedana that comes after? Salayatana on Pasa. Is it the same? Is it different? Is it stronger? Is it, uh, you know, and so that you, you can, you can, uh, spend a lot of energy trying to figure out all those details. But so I thought that I found that just making these four basic chunks of, uh, setting up the subject object, um, uh, dynamic and then the process of perception and feeling. And then once feelings have been uh, chased after tana upadana bhava, the kind of mind getting lost in its uh, objects of, of uh, aversion or desire or fear or opinion, any of those outflows, and then the result of having got lost, jati jara marna sokapari deva dukkha domana subhayasa. So that's um, uh, to, to get a feeling for how the process works and then mapping that onto our experience. I think just using that the basic four chunks. But as you were saying, I think, sister, you got to kind of, uh, in terms of practicing, just be awake <laughs> as much as possible. The more that vijja is established, then the whole process doesn't get going. The, 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 it's not being fueled by by avijja, by that ignorance, and that the, that whole um, solidifying of the subject-object division, a me here and a world there, that isn't being um, brought into into form, it's not it's not arising. And so 
there's that quality of clarity and peacefulness is is established and ongoing. The more I thought about it, the more um, foolish I found. The more, the more what? Foolish. I, uh, stupid. Foolish. A, a foolish. <laughs> and uh, it's just uh, away from the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. Got in, uh, lost in thought. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so uh, I see that it's dangerous. Dangerous. Learning Dhamma can be also dangerous. Yes. Yeah. There's also one of the a very helpful um, little passages, a saying in the Anguttara Nikaya, I think it's in the Book of the Fours, where the Buddha says, Don't complicate the uncomplicated. Apapanchang papancheti. Don't complicate the uncomplicated. So it's a, it's always a risk when talking about dependent origination. <laughs> it can get overcomplicated. But hopefully, with the next chapters, we we start off with the um, the next ones are the I start talking about the four exit points from the cycle, and so that uh, uh, is hopefully dwelling more on practicalities rather than just the theoretical background. That's my aim, anyway. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes. Yes. Um, I will, yesterday I did I understand if I understood correctly. You said something like uh, when when we uh, when in the practice in the practice we shouldn't try to vocalize or conceptualize things like put things in words and thinking and. Concept and then, and then I the, the first week of the retreat, I remember that you said that um, you should uh, learn the dependent <laughs> origination and then reflect the state we are, and then so I followed that and I, I was I was busy with thinking the whole time. <laughs> and then, so, uh, then, then yesterday was something else, and then I was confused, and I Well, I'm, I apologize if I'm being inconsistent, but I'm I'm following <laughs> I, I'm following in the footsteps of my beloved and respected teachers, <laughs> particularly Lumpur Shah, who was completely unafraid of being totally inconsistent. <laughs> because uh, no, seriously, I think that there's a time for, like, say, getting acquainted, getting familiar with these basic concepts and getting to, to know them um, and uh, and a time to leave the words alone and what I was talking about yesterday I think again it's hard to remember exactly what I said to, to whom and when but particularly when there's the f- uh, painful emotional feelings um, it's around that area or when we've we've made a mistake or we've we've caused suffering to ourselves or others it's very, at least for, for myself and many other people, it's um, it's very easy for the thinking mind to kind of jump in and start, um, uh, say, kind of criticizing ourselves or telling a whole story of how we're going to do it all different in the future or how it's somebody else's fault. And, and so uh, in that respect, I was saying the more wordless it is that we just experience the painful result of unskillful action. So you know, you said something. You know, you've you've shouted at somebody, and uh, and then 
you feel bad, they feel bad, and so then that feeling in the in the heart, in the jitta, is ow, that hurts. And so what I was saying then, rather than trying to analyze it or make a you know a, or or make a whole kind of um, program to not do that again in the future in our, in our thoughts and ideas, you know, the, we we might have a like a wholesome intention with that. But my experience has been that that complicates things. That's like complicating the uncomplicated. And what teaches us more often is pain. <laughs> It'd be nice to learn from, from pleasure, <laughs> but most of us learn more effectively from painful feeling than we do from pleasant feeling. I'm not the first person to make that observation. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, we, we can learn from pleasant feeling, but we tend to learn more completely in, uh, uh, from, from dukkha, from painful feeling. And so in that respect, just to let that genuinely be known with no no excuses, no regrets, no self-hatred, just that was done, this is the effect, ow. And just to let that, like, uh, not to distract your mind with something else, but just to let yourself feel it. And to... And to, and to let that painful feeling have its effect. So in that instance, the less words, the better. Um, and and it, but it, you know you can still use some words like it's like this. <laughs> it's always helpful. <laughs> it's this way. This is the way it is. And so then uh, that um, in that circumstance, then the, the um, it's it's not a, the less concepts words that are there, then the more directly that that painful feeling has its uh, has its impact and, and as Lumpur Cha um, said until we really know the the pain of attachment we won't let go that's a, one of his uh, many wonderful sayings <laughs> so it's not that we want to to feel discomfort or that if it was a it was more effective to, to learn through pleasant experience that would be good but often it is through um, the you know, frustrations or, or regrets and, and uh, those emotional pains that we learn very directly. And uh, I, I feel it's not just for me, but I think for many, many people, the the, the more direct and uncomplicated that is, the more it's just um, received in a direct way. And I think I used the example of like, touching a hot fire, that you, know, you, you don't have to think that's hot. You, you know, already you pulled your hand away because you, you know it's hot. Um, so that 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 learning is a non-conceptual, intuitive, insti- uh, instinctive learning. Does that make sense? So during the day when I try to be mindful, and when something comes up, I say anger is like this, and it is the conceptualized, how verbalized or not, I just observe how this the sensation more. Well, that's a pretty simple statement. So I think <laughs> just just to to focus the attention. Uh, uh, you know that that just just a couple of words like that. Yeah, I wouldn't say that's you know, out of place, but to 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 the degree possible to let to let oneself you know feel the the experience, but using a thing like it's like this or anger feels like this, 
um, and just using that to direct the attention to that state and then leaving it alone. Is, I do that kind of thing a lot. Speaking of inconsistency, um, <laughs> the, uh, just to tell a little story. Uh, so my last conversation with Lumpur Cha in 1979, so I, I had had the plan to come back and visit England because when I left uh, in... 1977, uh, I had no idea I was going to become a Buddhist monk and such like. I was going to travel around the world for a few years and see what happened. Anyway, so uh, uh, Chithurst Monastery had had, uh, had been opening up and that we'd heard about. That was that was all happening. And so I uh, and my grandmother had written me a letter saying, oh, I'd like to see you again before I get too, too old and, and die. And that being very sort of Restless and lonely at Mopopong, I've got this aerogram with my granny. My granny needs me. <laughs> so that dropped a, a match into the hay barn, as they say. And so anyway, I got this idea that I, uh, I'd like to go back to England and also to meet... I know I'd never met Gumpor Sumedho at that point. As he, he'd already gone to England by the time I had arrived. So I had this idea um, to uh, to go back to England. So. I, just before the, the, the rains retreat began, I went to see Lumpur Cha, and I was, I had my whole script, I had my kind of, everything worked out to persuade him, this is a really great idea. Even though I hadn't even got one rains as a monk, I'd been ordained as a monk in April, and I was, you know, I had my whole script to persuade him, this was a wonderful idea for me to go back and live with Ajahn Sumedho in England. And, um, uh, to my surprise, I, I couldn't speak Thai very well at all, but I had another monk there to translate. And uh, and uh, it did, he didn't need any persuading at all. He just said, "All right, but go after the pansa, not now." So I had to wait another three months before I could before I could travel. So anyway, it was sort of in my mind to be going back to England after the the rains retreat had finished, um, and I was <laughs> the. Uh, I was so impatient, I was co- became convinced that the moon wasn't changing size. <laughs> the, the last week of the rain, it's like, it's not changing, it's the same size. It's, 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 not, it's not growing, it's supposed to be nearly full, it's like the same as it was yesterday. It's ridiculous, but it felt that way, it's like, it's not changing. Each day was like five years. I was a you know, restless 22-year-old, so it was... It was uh, Par, par for the course, I think, in that, that, uh, in that situation. Anyway, so finally I got a, a telegram there at the monastery um, just before I was about to, uh, a week or so before I was going to travel, I got a telegram from my sister saying that my father, our father was very ill and could I come straight away? So he'd had a heart attack. So I went scooting down from the little branch monastery where I was living in Royette and, and went to go and pay respects to Lumpur Cha to ask to go back to England immediately. So uh, anyway, this is a bit of a preamble, but so my last uh, dialogue with, with Lumpur Cha took place, I'd come down from the branch monastery in Royet province and went to see him, paid respects, um, and uh, uh, and again my tie was very, very poor, but Ajahn Jagaro, as he was then, was uh, translating for me, and Ajahn Cha spoke for about 20 minutes, and Ajahn Jagaro said, well... Uh, essentially, he said four things. <laughs> he said, uh, "Go to England, um, pay re- uh, pay your respects to Ajahn Sumedho, spend time with your family, and then come straight back to Thailand." 
And then the second thing he said was, go to England, pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, go and spend time with your family, uh, spend, uh, uh, you can spend a year there, uh, with, uh, around your family and with Ajahn Sumedho, and then after a year you should come back to Thailand. And the third thing he said was, uh, go to England, pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, go and visit your family, come back, you know, live with Ajahn Sumedho at this new monastery, and, uh, and you should stay there. Uh, but if it gets really difficult, uh, it's really a problem, then you can come back to Thailand if you really need to. <laughs> and the fourth thing he said was, go to England, pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, go see your family, go, go live at the new monastery and don't come back. <laughs> and it was all with exactly the same expression. Like, there, was, there was no change of tone, there was, and there was no indication that he was totally contradicting himself at all. It was just, these are your instructions. Follow them to the letter. <laughs> so that was a, a very good uh, inconsistency mode. So basically, you go and figure it out. You go and see what happens, and you, you know you figure it out. Make your own choices. Any other questions? Yes, um, I'm trying to tie this together somehow because I, I feel there's a theme about um, you know being able to kind of guide ourselves in the right way. So the Dharma is so multicolored and there's different instruction from different times. And even the Buddha contextualized his teachings, mm -hmm. and yet, um, how do we know when to apply what? <laughs> Especially in the context of when the, when the teacher gives you four different instructions that are mutually contradictory. So, so is it a matter of like, no matter what happens, there is a, a kind of like, um, if one has a certain kind of trust in the teachings and one, one sort of has whatever is in one's reservoir to be able to be applied no matter which circumstance arises or... Um, well, it's a good question. One of the things that I campaign against is the idea that there is a thing that I should be doing. You know, when people say, it was meant to be, Ajahn, I scowl. I don't mean to, but <laughs> well, sometimes I do. <laughs> but, uh, there, you know, because in Buddha Dharma, there isn't a meant to be. There might be a predisposition or an inclination towards some activity or some event. But the, the Buddha spent... 45 years teaching uh, uh, to counter the beliefs in predestination and, and uh, you know, fixity of karma and such like. And so that there isn't a, a right thing for me to do, or for you to do, or for any of us to do. Or, or there might be a right thing, but it only lasts for a nanosecond and then something else is the right thing. And so that um, that uh, so I feel that's helpful in, in terms of rather than thinking, oh, there is the right thing for me to do, or there's the right place for me to be, or the right Ajahn, the right uh, Rinpoche for me to be, with, the right Lama. Um, and that, uh, so I, I feel it's very helpful to just <laughs> let go of, of that, uh, if that structure exists, or that, that set of ideas exists, to let go of that. And instead, what this, this uh, and that kind of inconsistency points to is Essentially, you know, figure it out on your own as you go along. Because if you have the principle to learn from whatever happens, um, then you're not being foolish. You're not just sort of making trouble for yourself. You're not sort of 
going out in the freezing cold with just a t-shirt on. You know, you're, you're, if, it's, if it's freezing cold, and, you know, icy ice and snow, you know, you, you dress for it. Or if it's baking hot, then you, you dress for it. But if you have the basic principle of being ready to learn from everything, then you, you make a choice and you see what happens. And you see whether that choice has led to something beneficial or something uh, harmful. If it's led to something harmful, okay, what do I learn from that? If it's, if it's led to something beneficial, what do I learn from that? And so, rather than there being like a fixed path that, you should, that we should be following, that is you know, the, the right way, the right thing for me to do, um, then it's essentially being attuned to each moment <laughs> and learning what can be learned from the, 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 the fabric of each, uh, each situation. And then, uh, and then when we, we realize we've made, made choices or things are happening that are continually obstructive and difficult, then that tells you this isn't a particularly helpful situation and maybe I should think about being somewhere else. Or, um, or the opposite, if this is really great, this is marvellous, something in me wants to hang on to this forever, okay, be aware of that. <laughs> but at the moment, this is really, this is really good. So um, let's, let's stay with this. And so that, um, you know, figuring it out as you go along, it might seem a bit vague, <laughs> uh, but, but I feel that that's, uh, in a sense, the best way that, that, that we can work as human beings. Or it's like, you know, if you're in an orchestra, you know what the, the music is on the, on the score, but what's, what's the conductor doing today? He's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> he's on steroids today. I've got to keep up, you know, everyone's like, yeah, it's extra ramped up. Okay, I was feeling kind of calm, but whoa, okay, this one's really moving, so I better get with it. Um, and, or that it's really benign, oh, you know, the, oh, you know, the conductor's, the, you know, the conductor's really, everything's really, really calm. Oh, that's right, you know, the, the first, you know, the first violinist, you know, she just had a, uh, her, her partner just passed away, so she, you know, she's very sad, so there's a somber quality to the, to our playing today, so okay, go with that. So you're, you're attending to the situation you're in, and you're learning from what goes on. So, say so for example, that, that situation of me coming back from Thailand, I'd never met Lumpur uh, Sumedha. His reputation was really frightening. I was actually quite worried, because there were these stories of um, uh, when they were living in Hampstead, they would have these uh, like five, uh, ten-hour sittings, like sit for five hours, then you can have five minutes to go to the bathroom and shift your posture, and then come back and have another five hours sitting. But, he felt they were getting a bit stodgy and they needed to ramp up their practice. You know, cold showers at three o'clock in the morning to kind of rouse the vigor. I thought, actually, some aid, I was really, I'm not sure if I want to be around here. <laughs> yeah, very worldly, yeah, very worldly considerations. Seriously, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Those are, those are the stories that were coming through to us from the monks who were living there. And, uh, and from Ajahn Samedo as well. But when I met him, uh, at the end of, you know, October of 79, and then I first went to Chithurst, after my dad had recovered from his heart attack, my, he, uh, when he was off the critical list, my mother collapsed. So she was in one hospital. She had like a bowel seizure. So she was, had, had surgery and she was in one hospital. My dad was in another hospital. So my sisters and I were shuttling back and forth for a month because he Pembury Hospital and Ashford Hospital in Kent. So when that was all over, and both parents had recovered and things had settled a bit, then I moved into Chithurst. 
And uh, uh, so uh, Lumpur Sumedha was, he was in his late 40s. He, uh, and he was giving like two Dhamma talks a day, every day. Yeah. Yeah, every morning uh, at the at the kind of work meeting, uh, we didn't have rule. We didn't have breakfast, <laughs> so at the uh, tea in those days. Um, and uh, every evening there was a dhamma talk every night. And so within a very short period of time, I had this feeling of like, I am going to stay here. <laughs> Whatever it takes to stay with this, I'm going to. This doesn't happen twice in a lifetime. So whatever I need to do to stay here, I want to. You know, this is something to stay with. And then, so that was one of the things. You know, Lumpur Chah said, "You go and figure it out." You know, uh, and so then it was really clear. This is really unique and incredibly wonderful situation. Yeah, you know, there was only about there was four nuns and the, you know who were all uh, newly ordained Anagari cars. There was seven monks, eight monks. Um, and uh, yeah, and then about seven or eight lay people living there, so it was it was an incredible sort of dhamma fest, <laughs> dhamma fest. But you know, week after week after week, and uh, uh, so it was. Uh, there was this feeling of like this: this isn't going to happen twice in a lifetime. Just stay with this, stay here, because this is this is good. So I could see there was a. Eh. <laughs> I want to keep this, but also it didn't mean to say I should move away, but rather okay, this is. This is the, the the situation that's taken shape. This is wonderfully beneficial. This is you know, and this is really a, a, a marvelous and a incredibly uh, powerful time of learning. And so great, you know, make hay while the sun shines, as they say. Well, sure, there's a German equivalent. <laughs> make hay while the sun shines. And uh, so, that, but uh, I could have thought, oh well, Ajahn Chah's health is not good. Um, I should go back to Thailand and, and want to draw, draw close to him. I should learn Thai language, um, but I didn't. I just decided. Um, other people did, and like someone like Ajahn Jayasaro, he decided uh, very early on he was going to learn Thai as well as he could, and he was going to spend as much time as close to Ajahn Chah as he could because he felt that he really wanted to to be close to him as a teacher. And so he made that choice, and he developed you know, brilliant skills with the Thai language and. And uh, spent a lot of time close to Lumpur Chao. and so that uh, yeah, we we make our own individual choices, and then we get the the benefits and blessings from that. But the most important thing is to establish that basis of of uh, learning from whatever happens along the way, and uh, and not um, uh, not in a sense limiting your. Um, uh, so what you want to learn from from things that sort of fit your <laughs> your ideal like that I need to have this situation to practice or you know, I need to be with this kind of a teacher or this kind of a, an environment but if you have that I find you know, that sense of well, whatever is happening let that be my teacher which is what Yen Lumpur Chan Lumpur Sumaya would say you know over and over again then uh yeah, you have a very. It, it requires a lot more self-reliance. You, know, you have to sort of use your own uh, wisdom, your own intuition for what's going to what, what's a beneficial situation. You you can't just follow a program or follow a system. You know, but you know, you've got to use your own initiative and and look at your own experience. 
but then also the the results of uh, of setting that intention to learn from whatever happens, and it makes a very sort of richer and and illuminating life. You learn a lot along the way, and so you're not stuck in situations. If things are really not working, then of course you, know, you can you can make choices and go different places or find you know, different arrangements, um, but. You're, you're not setting up that idea of somewhere else there's this really good place where everything's going to be right. <laughs> but, uh, which is uh, uh, a way of, of um, putting the, 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 the real practice of Dhamma out of one's reach, if that makes sense. So that was a long answer. It's, it's a good question. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing is, Ajahn, that um, <laughs> what you said at the end even like um, my question was actually aiming at something different <laughs> and yet the answer was perfect mm-hmm. so, so even within that kind of like what is <laughs> what is the um, how am I being set up in terms of like uh, my, my own openness and letting go of my predispositions in, in any moment, and at the same time, kind of acknowledging also the predispositions that we have, and like at any moment in time, even being like taking the example of the sunset, mm-hmm. like my predisposition might be to, you know, not get touched, <laughs> and then it might be a good idea to actually look at mm-hmm. the sunset and enjoy the beauty, and at the same time be aware that it's changing. Or my predispositions would be to be completely like high on dopamine all the time, <laughs> in which case it might be a good idea to, you know, maybe narrow my my, my view a little bit. So I was also sort of uh, getting at, at that aspect, and, and yet what, what you said was uh, super helpful. Thank you. Okay, so uh, seven o'clock has come around again, amazingly. It does every day. <laughs> so let's uh, leave it there. And the next chapter is called The First Exit Point, Point from the Cycle. So uh, let's uh, leave it there for today.